You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. On a cold January afternoon in 1649, Charles I, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, was executed by his own subjects. His crime? High treason. This unprecedented act rocked the Three Kingdoms and the fledgling British Empire, and followed ten years of rebellion, revolution, and civil war. Pax Britannica, a history podcast on the British Empire, covers these incredible events, complete with interviews with world-leading experts on the period. Find Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link slash pax. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This is part four in our series on Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Today, we are going to get Hillary and Tenzing and the rest of the 1953 British Mount Everest expedition across the western coombe, up to the south call, and to the summit of the mountain. Two notes to start. One, while we will get our heroes to the top of Everest, we still have another episode after this one. There's just a lot of things to cover in the aftermath of this epic expedition, including the lives of our two stars. Second note, I noticed that in this series there are quite a few quotes from Ed Hillary and the British team members, but not a lot from Tenzing, and I wanted to point out why. First, Tenzing did not read or write. He would publish a couple of books later in life, but with someone else doing the writing for him. This means that we have very little documentation from the famed Sherpa. There are no letters or journals or articles to draw upon. To contrast that, Hillary wrote 11 books in his lifetime, including several about the Everest climb. The second point is the language divide. Tenzing's English was not great. He could have conversations and knew how to communicate with his comrades, but he wasn't comfortable speaking the language. Thus, he didn't do many interviews during his time as a climber. In the end, it just means that there's a lot less available material, including quotes, from Tenzing compared to Hillary and the rest of the Everest climbing team. I just wanted to explain that in case you are wondering why there aren't that many quotes from Tenzing. And that's it for today's notes. Let's get going. So, last time, we had left the expedition after they had established Camp 3, just above the Kambu Icefall, and at the edge of the western Coombe. A safe and secure route had been set up through the icefall, and the Sherpas were now hauling tons and tons of gear up the glacier to the camp. The expedition now began to look at the next challenge before them, crossing the western Coombe. The Coombe, a flat glacial basin, was four kilometers or two and a half miles long. It rises from roughly 20,000 to 22,300 feet, or 6,000 to 6,800 meters. 
Three mountains surround the Coombe, Everest, Lhotse, and Nupsi. Unlike the icefall, the Coombe is a slow, gradual rise. And because of this, you would think that it would be easy to cross. However, the Coombe is littered with crevasses, huge ones, and avalanches along the edges were always an issue. Thus, it's not like the team could just march across it as if it was some farmer's field. Another thing about the Coombe was the heat. The snow-covered, bowl-shaped slopes surrounding the Coombe reflect and amplify solar radiation, and thus the whole place starts to roast when the sun comes out. How hot does it get? Well, I have read that temperatures can get as high as 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or 38 degrees Celsius, and then when the sun drops, the temperatures plummet to well below zero. As you can imagine, the intense daytime glare required the team members to use goggles, as well as some form of sunscreen, or they would get badly burned. The Coombe, by the way, as it is a big valley, is protected from the winds and other elements, and it makes it really, really quiet. Eerily quiet. The Swiss were so taken aback by the Coombe, they called it the Valley of Silence, something that has stuck to this day. Now, the good thing for the expedition was that in their ranks, they had one of the few men who had actually crossed the Coombe, Tenzing Norgay. And thus, on April 26th, Tenzing and Ed Hillary would rope up for the first time their job to cross the Western Coombe and reach the site of Swiss Camp Number 4, which was at 21,200 feet, or 6,460 meters. Tenzing, in particular, was eager to do the crossing, as this was his first real climbing above base camp. So the team would move across the Coombe, led by Tenzing and Hillary, going up and down and around and across the many crevasses. One particularly wide crevasse would have an aluminum ladder placed across it. Bringing these ladders for this exact thing is an example of the planning and preparation that the team had put into the project. The crossing of the Coombe was a bit of a slog, as the men tired easily in the intense heat and deep, fine snow. However, the dangers were not so pronounced compared to the recent crossing of the Kumbu Icefall, and thus Tenzing and Hillary traversed the Coombe and reached the old Swiss camp in a single day. At the camp, the two men were rewarded with a stash of food left by the Swiss, including biscuits, cheese, porridge, bacon, and jam. With the route through the Coombe mapped out, Tenzing and Hillary headed back to Camp 3. They then decided to continue on to base camp before dark, and in doing so, almost had a disaster. Both Hillary and Tenzing were familiar with the route through the icefall by this time, and went quickly through it, even jogging on occasion. As they approached a narrow crevasse near the atom bomb area, Hillary decided to jump it instead of using a snow bridge that was available. Hillary jumped and landed on the other side of the crevasse, and that's when the ice began to collapse under his feet. Tenzing reacted quickly, anchoring himself and drawing his rope tight, and preparing for the inevitable. As the ice collapsed under him, Hillary dug his crampon boots into the ice wall. Crampons, by the way, are spikes that are attached to the soles of a boot. The result was a textbook saved by Tenzing. Hillary's fall would quickly be stopped, and he would climb out of the crevasse with Tenzing's assistance. It was a bit of a stunning moment, so sudden and so unexpected, and almost a catastrophe. If Tenzing had not been ready, he could have been dragged into the crevasse along with Hillary, and both men could have died. Once at base camp, Hillary told the others what had happened, saying, quote, Without Tenzing, I would have been finished today. End quote. The story demonstrates several things. First, the jump over the crevasse was something very much in character for Hillary. He was, at times, a bit too impetuous for his own good. And second, it shows how important it was to have a good teammate. It was obvious to everyone that Hillary and Tenzing were really good for each other. Hillary was a bit of a daredevil, the guy who pushed and was not afraid to take a little risk. Tenzing was a rock, a dogged and steady and tenacious teammate, and always willing to go forward. His attention to detail and his smarts allowed Hillary to push the boundaries of their climbs. 
That said, I want to stress how good of climbers both of these men were. Tenzing was almost 39 years old. This was a seventh time to Everest. Hillary was 34 and had been to Everest twice and all over the Himalayas. They were still young enough that their physical skills had not deteriorated, yet they were old enough to have gained invaluable experience and knowledge. As I said, the two were perfect for one another. Going forward, they would climb often together and would quickly gel as a team and found that they could count on each other. They both pushed hard, and they both very much wanted to have a crack at the summit of Everest. Two days after his near fall into the crevasse, Hillary wrote home saying, quote, I am going extraordinarily well, as Tenzing, the famous Sherpa, and I have teamed up as the Tigers of the party. I hope I can keep it up. End quote. He would also write this of Tenzing, saying, quote, I have found Tenzing an admirable companion, capable, willing, and extremely pleasant. His rope work was first class, as my near catastrophe had shown. End quote. So with the route through the coom mapped out, Hillary and Tenzing would be held back from any major exercises by Hunt, the idea to conserve their energy for what lay ahead. A camp on the other side of the coom was officially set up on May 1st by Hunt, Tom Borderland, and Charles Evans. This would be called Advanced Base Camp, a.k.a. Camp 4. The camp would quickly become a village of tents and become home to more than 30 men whose job it was to support the climbers and Sherpas heading further up the mountain. Massive amounts of food, supplies, and gear were brought up through the Kumbu Icefall and across the Coombe. Radio contact was even set up from the camp all the way down to Camp Number 1 below the Icefall. This was all very different than what someone like Eric Shipton or the Swiss would have done. It was large in scale, very methodical, and well planned out. So now with the Icefall and the Coombe crossed and gear moving up to advanced base camp, the next phase of the operation was to get to the South Call, which was at 26,000 feet, or 7,925 meters. Now, a quick reminder, the Swiss, with Tenzing, had identified two options up to the south call. The first was to go straight up a steep snow and ice slope called the Geneva Spur. The other option was to go to the right, up the glacier to the face of the neighboring mountain, Lhotse. The Geneva Spur route, which the Swiss had chosen, was more direct. However, trying to make the climb up the spur to the south call in a single day was almost impossible and due to the steepness of the slope, there was no place to set up an intermediate camp. This was a huge contributor to the failure of the Swiss expedition, and they had recommended the other route to the British. Going to the right, up the face of Lhotse, meant veering away from Everest, but the route was not as steep, and it offered spots for intermediate camps. This plan fell right in with Hunt's philosophy. He wanted more camps so he could get his climbers, plus the gear and supplies they needed, closer to the top of Everest before they made a go for the summit. Initial recon up the face of Lhotse, conducted by Hunt, Evans, and Bordelin, began on May 2nd, and the next day a camp would be established at 22,000 feet, or 6,700 meters. This was Camp 5, and it was essentially at the base of Lhotse. Yet another camp, this Camp 6, was established on May 4th at 23,000 feet, or 7,000 meters. Again, the Swiss had tried to go from advanced base camp to the south call, a distance of 4,000 feet, or 1,220 meters, without any intermediate camps, and it had cost them dearly. Hunt was not going to make that same mistake. So while all of this was happening, Hillary and Tenzing would test out the open-circuit oxygen system. Again, this was the old-school approach, with the climbers carrying canisters of air, which they would breathe and then exhale into the atmosphere. On May 2nd, the two men would go from base camp, camp number one, to advanced base camp, camp number four, and back. They would make the climb in just over four hours. By comparison, it usually took nine hours to do the trek, and it was broken up over two to three days. 
The outstanding results convinced Hillary just how important oxygen was going to be on the upcoming climb. And more importantly, the test impressed Colonel Hunt, which was good, because a few days later, on May 7th, he announced his assault teams. Tom Borderland and Charles Evans, using the new closed-circuit oxygen sets, would be the first team to make a go at the summit. The second team would be Hillary and Tenzing, using the traditional open-circuit system. Otherwise, there would be one major difference between the two teams. Team 1 was going to begin their assault from the south call, meaning they'd be looking to climb about 3,000 feet, or 915 meters, and back in a single day. For Team 2, the plan was to set up a temporary camp high up on the mountain, between the south call and the summit, and thus only have to climb half of what Team 1 was planning on their final push. Now a few notes here. First, Tenzing was disappointed by the decision, as he wanted to be on the initial assault team. He felt that a Sherpa should be one of the first men to reach the top of Everest. And this leads us to my second note, and that is that there were serious doubts about Bordelin and Evans accomplishing their climb in a single day. It has led many to believe that Colonel Hunt was using Team Number 1 as more of a reconnaissance push, knowing it would be almost impossible for them to cover that much ground in one day. Instead, they would make a push as high as they could, mark the trail, take notes about stuff, and get that information back to Team 2 to help make their ascent as easy as possible. This is just speculation, but it does make sense. Tenzing and Hillary were acknowledged as the strongest team, and by using Team 1 to blaze the trail as high as possible, it would help Team 2 actually accomplish the goal of the expedition. So with the locations of Camp 5 and 6 established, and the two assault teams named, there were two major things to accomplish. The first was to get gear and supplies up to Camp 5 and 6. These would not be big camps, like advanced base camp was, but still substantial. There would have to be food, a stove, medical supplies, clothing, tents, sleeping bags, and much, much more. I want to stress that getting all this gear up to these camps was not a simple thing. As with the Kumbu Icefall, it was on the climbers to make the route up the mountain safe for the Sherpas and their heavy loads. The second task at hand was identifying another camp higher up on the face of Lhotse, essentially one that was halfway between Advanced Base Camp and the South Call. Unfortunately, this is where the expedition would get bogged down. The Lhotse slope was steep, incredibly icy, and dangerous, and people just were going slower above 23,000 feet or 7,000 meters. Colonel Hunt had hoped to make this part of the climb in just a few days, but that was wildly optimistic. Instead, it would be a slow slog up Lhotse, and as the days ticked by, Hunt would grow increasingly anxious. He needed his team to get moving. And as he and the rest of the men looked up to the skies, there were ominous signs. It would snow almost every afternoon, which is often, but not always, a portent of an early monsoon season. And an early monsoon season could doom the expedition, as it meant gobs of fresh, warm snow blanketing the mountain. That created perfect conditions for avalanches. On May 11th, Hunt would assign George Lowe, the expedition's master of icecraft, and one of the Sherpas, Ang Nima, to make a hard push up Lhotse. What followed was a performance that many called legendary. The two men would work for days, cutting step after step into the steep mountainside, fixing ropes, and blazing a trail for others to follow. The two would turn a dangerous and highly technical climb into a route that a heavily encumbered man could follow with relative safety. In doing all of this, Lo and Ang Nima would spend 11 straight days over 7,000 meters or 23,000 feet. This would allow the Sherpas to bring the needed supplies up to Camps 5 and 6, plus it paved the way for Wilfred Noyce and George Lowe to select the location for Camp 7 at 24,000 feet, or 7,315 meters, on May 17th. With that done, supplies were carried up the mountain, 
and more importantly, a move toward the South call was underway. I feel like I'm throwing out all sorts of numbers and camps at you, so just as a way to clarify, at this point, the expedition had been going up the face of Lhotse and veering away from Everest. But now the team needed to turn back toward Everest and traverse Lhotse and get to the South Call. As they did this, they were gaining an altitude of about 2,000 feet, or 610 meters. On May 21st, Wilfred Noyce and Sherpa Anulu, the younger brother of Dot Tenzing, the second-in-command of the Sherpas, would make this crossing and reach the South Call. The South Call is a barren, icy, rubble-strewn plateau where Everest and Lhotse converge with no shelter. This meant that the winds and cold were brutal. The wind was so fierce, it would require the climbers an hour just to erect two tents, a task that would normally take only a few minutes. It was here on the South Call that Camp 8 was officially established. So with the South Call reached, that meant that the Sherpas, carrying hundreds of pounds of gear, could follow. However, there was a big problem. The Sherpas weren't budging from Camp 7. The truth is, the Sherpas were exhausted, and altitude sickness was taking its toll on them. Hearing of this, Hillary and Tenzing, who had been held back for the past week, went to hunt and asked to go to Camp 7 and get the Sherpas moving. They figured their Sirdar, Tenzing, might be able to spur them forward. It was a risky move as Hunt didn't want to get his top men exhausted, but at this point he had no other option. He would agree. Using oxygen, Hillary and Tenzing would trek from advanced base camp to Camp 7. They would find the Sherpas weary and disheartened. They had headaches and sore throats and some were physically ill. However, the arrival of Tenzing lit a fire under the men. They respected their Sirdar, and when he asked them to step up, they were not going to fail him. Charles Wiley would later say, quote, When he, Tenzing, arrived, it made all the difference. End quote. And thus, the next day, May 22nd, Tenzing and Hillary would lead 17 Sherpas from Camp 7 to Camp 8, carrying hundreds of pounds of vital stores needed for the final assault on the mountaintop. The two men had gone from advanced base camp to the South Call, roughly 5,000 feet, or 1,525 meters, in 24 hours, and in doing so had kept the expedition from grinding to a halt. It had been a critical moment, and Tenzing and Hillary and the Sherpas had all stepped up and gotten the job done. So with the gear and provisions making their way to the South Call, it was finally time to make a push for the summit. The first team to go would be Tom Bordelin and Charles Evans, using the new closed-circuit oxygen system. A few notes about the oxygen, as it will prove to be important to our story. First, there were actually three systems. In addition to the closed and open-circuit systems, there was also a sleeping set, designed to give a person a slow, mild flow of oxygen while they slept. And this would be a great success. The inability to sleep was a constant problem at high altitudes, and the supplemental oxygen helped tremendously with this issue. As for the new closed-circuit system, it had thus far shown promise. The system still used a cylinder, but just one. The oxygen was inhaled from the cylinder, and then was processed through a soda-lime canister, which absorbed the carbon dioxide and funneled the exhaled oxygen into a breathing bag for reuse. The system gave a climber almost pure oxygen. Also, it was lighter than the fully loaded open-circuit system, which was a good thing. The big issue with the closed-circuit system was that it was not well-tested. Still, it offered exceptional promise. Now, all that said, both the open and closed-circuit systems had demonstrated issue with their valves. They would ice up and stop working. The key was how would these valves perform when used near the top of Everest? The answer was anyone's guess. So to this point, the expedition had done a pretty amazing job. They had done things exactly as Colonel Hunt had envisioned. They had moved steadily up the Kumbu Glacier, set up camps along the way, crossed the western Coombe, 
climbed the face of Lhotse and made their way to the south call. They had done this by establishing more camps and camps higher up the mountain compared to other expeditions. Also, the climbing teams were, for the most part, well-rested, and the supplies and gear needed for the assault had made their way up to these advanced camps. In the end, the climbers and Sherpas were in better shape, there were more of them, and everyone was better supplied. All of this was the culmination of decades of efforts. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Team 1, Tom Bordelin and Charles Evans, would depart on May 26th for the first assault on the summit. They would leave an hour later than planned due to a problem with the damaged valve on Evans' oxygen apparatus, which took some time to fix. Now, before Bordelin and Evans left the camp, the expedition's leader, John Hunt, and one of the Sherpas, Da Namgyal, set off up the mountain carrying heavy loads of gear. These advanced climbers would do two things. First, they would blaze part of the trail for Evans and Bordelin. Having someone blaze the best route for you simply made things go quicker. Second, Hunt and Da Namgyal would carry supplies up the mountain that would be used by Team 2 on the next attempt on the summit. Again, this shows you the thought and teamwork put into the attack. By the way, the work done by Hunt and Da Namgyal was difficult, and it wasn't sexy. They knew that they weren't going to make it to the top of Everest, and they weren't going to get the glory. Yet they pushed on anyhow, helping those in their wake. Bordelin and Evans would move quickly up the southeast ridge of Everest, the closed-circuit oxygen set working extraordinarily well. They would eventually pass the advanced climbers. At around 28,000 feet, or 8,535 meters, the two men would stop to change soda-lime canisters. Here, Evans would have another issue with his oxygen system. However, this time, Bordelin could not fix it. Evans would go on, but without oxygen. Not an easy thing. By 1 p.m., the two climbers would reach the south summit of the ridge. A couple of notes here. First, if you look at the profile of Everest, as you go up the southeast ridge from the south call, there's a small rise along the way. This is the south summit. It's at 8,750 meters, or 28,700 feet. Second, 1 p.m. is often cited as the turning point on a climb up Everest. That means that if you want to get back to the south call before dark, you need to be up to the summit by 1 p.m. So here were Borderland and Evans, only 300 feet, or 90 meters, from the summit. They had gone higher than anyone in human history. It is a testament to Evans that he made it this high without oxygen, but at this point, he was thoroughly exhausted and could barely breathe. And Borderland, even though he had oxygen, was flagging badly. However, they were only 300 feet away. How could they not go on? Well, there was no question about Evans. He couldn't go any higher, not without oxygen. But what about Bordelin? He desperately wanted to give it a go as he was so close, and he debated going on alone. Evans tried to dissuade his partner, saying, quote, Tom, if you do that, you'll never see Jennifer again. End quote. Jennifer was Bordelin's wife. As Evans and Bordelin looked up the mountain, they could see, about halfway up to the top, a vertical rock wall that blocked the route. 
While they couldn't see it up close, they both knew it would be a formidable challenge. That clinched it. With Evans out of oxygen, both men exhausted, the day getting late, and a vertical rock wall in their path, they decided to turn around. The two men would start their way back down the mountain at 1.20 p.m., defeated again by Everest. Now, I want to stop any speculation about whether Borderland could have made it to the top or not. There's no way he would have done it. As Tenzing and Hillary will show, it'll take them two and a half hours to go from the south summit to the actual summit. There was just no way that Borderland could have done that in the condition he was in. And thus, they were lucky they turned around. As we have seen on Everest, men, even strong and seemingly inexhaustible men, hit a wall at some point, and both members of Team 1 were not far from that wall. Borderland and Evans would have staggered down Everest, falling several times along the way. They were lucky that both of them were not carried over a ledge. The two would stumble into the camp at the South Call in late afternoon, coated in ice, barely able to take more than a few steps at a time. Their beards and eyebrows were frozen, and the oxygen systems had icicles hanging from them. Hillary said that he had never seen anyone that tired. Borderland, in particular, was in bad shape. He was so physically spent he could barely even talk, leaving Evans to tell the others about their experience. By the way, regarding the failed attempt, Ed Hillary would, to his credit, admit that he was sort of pleased about it, as it would give him a chance to make the first summit. He would write, quote, I greatly admired what Charles and Tom had done, but I had a regrettable feeling of satisfaction as well. They hadn't got to the top, there was still a job to be done. End quote. The truth is that while all these men were teammates on the expedition, they were also competitors. All of them, no doubt, had dreamed that it would be them getting a chance to reach the top of Everest. Bordelin, despite being physically and mentally exhausted, lamented that he had come so close to the top of the mountain only to turn back. And to be honest, if they had not departed an hour late due to the problem with Evan's oxygen set, and then the failure of the same set on the south summit, well, they very well could have been the first men atop Everest. Were they guaranteed to have done that? Absolutely not, but you never know. All that aside, the return of Bordelin and Evans would set the stage for Team 2's try on the summit. Ideally, they would set off the next day, but things would have to wait as the morning would bring a fierce, swirling storm. Hillary would go out of his tent to look around and get blown off his feet. There would be no climbing that day. By the afternoon, the bad weather would ease, allowing some of the men to continue back down the mountain. This included Evans, Bordelin, Hunt, and one of the Sherpas, Angtemba. All of them were physically wiped out. In fact, Bordelin was so bad, Hunt thought that he was dying. Before departing, Hunt would pull Hillary aside, saying, quote, Ed, the most important thing is for you chaps to come back to safety. Remember that. But get up if you can. End quote. He then gave Hillary a white envelope. Inside was a small crucifix, and he asked Hillary to place it atop Everest. The four men would manage to make their way down to advanced base camp, but it wasn't easy. Angtemba fell off a snow bridge and into a crevasse. Luckily, he was roped to the others, and he ended up hanging upside down in midair before the others were able to pull him up. And both Hunt and Bordelin fell on multiple occasions and had to be aided much of the trek. Still, they would reach the safety of Camp 4. As there was no radio connection above Camp 4, the bulk of the expedition could now only wait for Hillary intending to return to find out the result of their climb. So with the departure of the four men from the South Call, it left Hillary and Tenzing, along with George Lowe, Alfred Gregory, Ang Nima, and Ang Pemba, to spend another day on Everest. The next morning, May 28th, the men would wake up to good and bad news. The good news was that the weather was fine for climbing. None of the men wanted to hunker down for another day or more on the South Call. The bad news was that Ang Pemba was sick, 
He was vomiting and weak, the days in the high altitude finally catching up to him. He could not climb. This meant that the gear they wanted to haul up to the mountain had to be distributed amongst five men, not six. Lo, Gregory, and Ang Nima would set off around nine in the morning. The three, using oxygen, would carry heavy loads of up to 50 pounds, or 23 kilograms, and cut steps for Team 2. Hillary and Tenzik would depart an hour later. Hillary noted that he carried with him a sleeping bag, air mattress, spare socks and gloves, a pencil and paper, matches and food, including sardines, honey, lemon crystals, and apricots and syrup. He also carried a camera. The men wore down trousers and jackets, wool Shetland pullovers, as well as three sets of gloves, one silk, one woolen, and one windproof. It was bulky but effective. Tenzing wore the red scarf that his friend, Raymond Lambert, had given to him after the previous year's expedition. Both men carried with them their ice axes and had the open-circuit oxygen system strapped to their backs. The climb-up was easy at this early stage, as Tenzing and Hillary followed in the path marked by the first group of men. Steps were cut, the path clearly marked, and thus difficult sections were avoided. Again, it's a great example of the teamwork that went into the climb. Hillary, by the way, noted that the ascent up was very steep, but technically not difficult. At 27,000 feet, or 8,230 meters, the climbers would pass the tattered remains of a tent. This was the spot Tenzing and Raymond Lambert had camped the previous year, without heat or proper sleeping bags. Hillary and Tenzing would eventually catch up to the advance team, and together they would reach the spot where John Hunt and Da Namgyal had, two days earlier, deposited their loads. These were essentials for the night's camp, including oxygen, a tent, food, a stove, and fuel. The five men would divide up the gear and push on, with low cutting steps. Their loads were now 50 and 60 pounds, or 23 to 27 kilograms. The men, despite using oxygen, were feeling the effects of carrying the heavy loads at such altitudes. Hillary said, quote, I felt as though I was being crushed into the earth, end quote. Tenzing would direct the team to a location he had remembered from the previous year's climb as a potential spot to set up another camp. Near there, the men would finally come to a halt at 8,500 meters, or 27,900 feet, and set up Camp 9 on a small sloping shelf. All the men were exhausted. Hillary and Tenzing were about 1,100 feet, or 335 meters, from the summit. At this point, it was time for the rest of the men to head back down the mountain. However, the Sherpa, Angnima, asked to stay at the camp for the night. He wanted to wait so that he could help the team down the next day. However, the tent was only big enough for two men, so his request was denied. It is a testament to the dedication and respect that the Sherpas had toward their duties, the climbers, and Tenzing. Now, when the three men prepared to leave, they said they were not going to take any oxygen, but Hillary and Tenzing knew that this was a mistake. They had seen how spent Bordelin and Evans had been from their climb, and that was with oxygen. To ask them to go down without any was enormously risky, and they insisted the three men take enough to make it back to the call. Thus, as Lo, Gregory, and Ang Nima headed back down the mountain, Tenzing and Hillary set up camp. It was not much, a single tent covering two rectangular areas next to each other, totaling 8 by 6 feet, or 2.5 by 2 meters. One section was a hand higher than the other, making it like a terrace, they called this spot the balcony. By 5 p.m., the area was leveled off as best as possible, and the tent was set up. It was time for Hillary and Tenzing to spend the night at a precarious spot on the top of the world. Inside the tent, the two climbers set up a stove, where Tenzing made chicken noodle soup to go with biscuits, dates, and hot lemonade. Apricots and syrup were dessert. Tenzing would keep his boots on for sleeping, but Hillary, wanting to put on dry socks, took his off. 
That night, Hillary, who had become quite an expert with the open-circuit oxygen system, assessed their situation. He figured two full cylinders of oxygen per person at 4 liters per minute, which was the recommended flow rate, would be needed to reach the top of Everest and get back down. And it was here that Hillary realized he had a problem. He did not have four full cylinders of oxygen. He only had two full cylinders, plus two others that were two-thirds full. It was only enough for about five and a half hours of oxygen. Hillary calculated that if they trimmed the flow to three liters per minute, they could get seven hours out of the apparatus. That would be cutting it close, but he felt they could get up the mountain and back down to the south call in that time frame. The downside was that the reduced oxygen flow could hamper the effectiveness of the climbers. And again, I can't stress how important it was to get down as well as up. An exhausted climber coming down the mountain at these altitudes without oxygen was asking for disaster to strike. Now, as the men prepared to try and get some sleep, the sleeping oxygen system wasn't ideal either. They only had four hours of it available. Hopefully, that would be enough. The two would turn on the sleeping oxygen at 9 p.m. and fall into a restless, uneasy sleep. When the cylinder ran out two hours later, they would promptly wake up and find themselves bitterly cold. By the way, one of the side effects of using sleeping oxygen was that a person felt warmer, and thus, when it ran out, they would get chilled to the bone. Unable to sleep, Tenzing and Hillary would make some hot lemonade with lots of sugar as a way to ward off the cold. Neither could sleep until they turned on the last of the sleeping oxygen at 1 a.m. As you probably guessed, the two would wake at 3 a.m. as soon as the oxygen was spent. They would stay in their sleeping bags for another hour before rousing themselves. Outside, the temperature was negative 27 Celsius or negative 17 Fahrenheit, and that did not factor in the wind, which was fierce. When the sun rose, they would find the morning to be clear and crisp. It was a good day to climb. Below, they could see Tengboa Monastery, noting that the monks were now rising for morning prayers. Hillary and Tenzing would eat breakfast and make sure to drink a lot of liquid. That was important. On the earlier expeditions, no one realized how dehydrated a person got at these altitudes, and Dr. Pugh had instructed the climbers to hydrate as much as possible, saying it would improve their performance at this extreme altitude. Now, everything looked pretty good, except Ed Hillary would run into one problem, and that was that his boots were frozen solid. He would end up placing them against the portable stove to thaw them out. Soon there would be the smell of burning rubber and leather filling the tent. The boots would ultimately be fine, albeit a little singed. The duo left Camp 9 at 6.30 a.m. on May 29, 1953. As we said, the morning was clear and crisp. The oxen gear was all set and operating properly. The men carried loads of around 30 pounds, or 14 kilograms, most of it the oxygen apparatus. It was summit or bust. There were no more camps, no more nights on the mountain. They were roughly 1,100 feet, or 335 meters, from their goal. No one in history had been placed this close to the top of Everest. The work and sacrifice of hundreds of others had gotten them to this point, and it was time to seal the deal. With Hillary's boots still a little stiff, Tenzing would take the initial lead up the mountain, and they would quickly find a huge bonus. Two oxygen cylinders, left by Evans and Borland on their descent a few days earlier, were found. While not full, they offered an extra hour of oxygen and could be used on the descent if necessary. This eased a huge worry for Hillary and Tenzing. It would allow them to focus on climbing and not the status of their oxygen. The ascent up Everest was a steep one, but not extremely difficult. However, it was not without drama or dangers. Early on, the snow was difficult due to a breakable crust. Hillary called this a mountaineer's curse. Every step you took, the snow crust broke and the climbers sank up to their knees, or higher in the snow, 
It broke up a climber's rhythm and made the going slow and tiring. Another issue was shifting snow. At one point, as the two men were moving upwards, the snow surface broke on a steep slope. The snow began to move toward the edge of the mountain and add Hillary with it. Luckily, the slide only carried Hillary about three to four feet, or about a meter, before his momentum halted. But much of the snow kept going and fell 10,000 feet below to the Kangsheng Glacier. Of that moment, Hillary would write, quote, I never felt more insecure, end quote. The two men pushed on, fighting shifting snows, winds, and snow that could, at times, be hip deep. At 9 a.m., they would reach the south summit, about 300 feet, or 90 meters, from the top of Everest. This is where Bordelin and Evans had gotten to a few days earlier. Here, the two men rested, drank some water, and swapped out oxygen canisters. Being able to rid themselves of one of the canisters was a blessing, as it lessened their load. Above the south summit, the snow was crisp and smooth, and it was easy to cut steps. And then, about halfway between the south summit and the true summit, Hillary and Tenzing would come to the rock step that had been seen by Bordelin and Evans. But before we tackle that obstacle, it was at this time that Hillary would notice that Tenzing was struggling with his breathing. He would examine the oxygen set and find a rubber valve had frozen, which partially blocked the airflow. He fixed this by manipulating the valve with his fingers. Hillary then checked his own apparatus and found it too was beginning to freeze. After clearing it, they would continue, but they were lucky it was nothing worse. So now it was time to confront the rock step that was in their path. This was a nearly vertical rock face with a height of about 12 meters or 39 feet. Today it is called Hillary's Step, and it is the last major challenge of climbing Everest. As the two men examined the rock face, they could see no simple way around it, and there was no obvious way to scale it. A reminder, climbing rocks at this height is really hard. The wind and cold limit your movements, and it's not like you can take off your gloves to help you get a good grip. And let's not forget the boots and the crampons on them are made for snow and ice, not rock. Examining his options, Hillary would see something on the right side of the rock face. He would later say, quote, On the east side was another great cornice, and running up the full 40 feet of the step was a narrow crack between the cornice and the rock. End quote. A cornice, by the way, is an overhanging edge of snow. So essentially what Hillary had before him was a big rock face, and on one side it was covered in snow. In between the snow and the rock was a crack, and that crack offered a potential way up to the top of the rock face. Now, the big issue here is that if you use the cornice, you have to hope that the cornice doesn't crack off when you're climbing it. If that happens, yikes, it is a 10,000-foot drop. But as we have said before, on Everest, you have to take what is given to you. I'll read to you Hillary's description of what happened next. Quote, Leaving Tenzing to belay me as best he could, I jammed my way into this crack, then kicking backwards with my crampons, I sank their spikes deep into the frozen snow behind me and levered myself off the ground. Taking advantage of every little rock hold and all the force of knee, shoulder, and arms I could muster, I literally cramponed backwards up the crack with the fervent prayer that the cornice would remain attached to the rock. Despite the considerable effort involved, my progress, although slow, was steady, and as Tenzing paid out the rope, I inched my way upwards until I could finally reach over the top of the rock and drag myself out of the crack onto a wide ledge. For a few moments I lay regaining my breath, and for the first time really felt the fierce determination that nothing now could stop us from reaching the top. I took a firm stand on the ledge and signaled Tenzing to come on up. End quote. Once above Hillary's step, the climb was a steady but easy rise to the summit. The only real drama now was how much longer. When climbing, each little ridge offered the chance to be the final one, but many revealed just another crest a short ways up. 
No matter, with Hillary leading the way, the two would push higher and higher and eventually cut their way to the top of a ridge and see a firm, rounded, snowy dome. Hillary wrote, quote, A few more whacks of the ice axe, a few more weary steps, and we were on the summit of Everest, end quote. Of the moment, Tenzing would say, quote, We stepped up, we were there, the dream had come true, end quote. It was 11.30 a.m., May 29, 1953. Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay had become the first people to reach the highest point on Earth. The height was recorded as 29,002 feet, or 8,840 meters, but would be adjusted two years later to 29,029 feet, or 8,848 meters. At the top of Everest, Hillary would turn to Tenzing and try to shake his hand, but Tenzing was having none of that. Instead, he threw his arms around Hillary in delight, and the two men would give each other some appropriately manly thumps on the back instead. Hillary and Tenzing would spend only 15 minutes on the top of the world. Hillary would take off his oxygen gear and get out his camera and begin taking photos. While doing this, he would snap one of the most famous mountaineering photos ever, perhaps the most famous. It was of Tenzing holding up his ice axe. Attached to the axe were the flags of Nepal, India, Great Britain, and the United Nations. There are no photos of Hillary on the summit, as Hillary did all the photo taking, and he declined to have Tenzing take one of him. Hillary would eventually have to turn his oxygen back on when he became clumsy and slow-moving. Meanwhile, Tenzing would kneel down and say some prayers to the goddess that the Buddhists believe lived atop Jungma Lungma, and then bury some offerings in the snow. They were modest gifts, some chocolates and sweets, as well as a colored pencil given to Tenzing by his daughter, Pem Pem. Hillary would add the small cross given to him by John Hunt. The two men would celebrate their success by eating some Kendall mint cake that they had brought, while admiring the snowy peaks and valleys and plains below them. Before departing, Hillary would collect some rocks from the summit and shove them into his pocket. At 11.45, the two men would begin their trek down Everest. They had two hours of oxygen remaining, plus another hour in the tanks left by Team 1. It would be sufficient for their needs. On their descent, they would stop at Camp 9, where they rested and had some hot lemonade before continuing down. Below, no one really knew what was going on, and it must have driven them crazy, waiting for Hillary and Tenzing to reappear. The two climbers, exhausted but triumphant, would reach the South Call that afternoon, where they were first greeted by George Lowe. Hillary smiled at his old friend and said, quote, Well, George, we knocked the bastard off. End quote. Wilfred Noyce and Passing Futar, who had come up to the call with Lowe to support Team 2, would get the climbers into the tents, where they would get hot food and recuperate from their arduous climb. The five men would spend the night on the South Call and continue down the next morning. On May 30th, at the advanced base camp, everyone jumped up when they saw five figures coming down off the mountain. As Hillary and Tenzing and the others got closer, they showed no emotion, which John Hunt initially took to mean they had failed. But then George Lowe pointed to the top of the mountain in triumph, and it was then that Hunt and the rest of the men realized what had happened. They rushed forward, cheering. Hunt, who was normally a very reserved man, was overjoyed, and he hugged Hillary and then Tenzing. We have film of this moment, and it's really quite emotional. Hunt would say of the celebration, quote, The relief and the release of tension was like nothing I have ever felt before or since, end quote. Indeed, this was a triumph for all of the 1953 Mount Everest Expedition team members. The climbers, the supply people, the Sherpas, everyone. I can't stress that enough. It had been a team effort, coupled with some extraordinary individual performances. So Hillary and Tenzing were back at Camp 4. They were thin and tired, but in good spirits and good health. Actually, they were in really good health, considering how wiped out most men were after being that high up on Everest. 
Much of this has been attributed to Hillary and Tenzing's attention to detail about eating and hydration and their effective use of oxygen. Now, the success of the climb was celebrated by those in camp, but not by the outside world, at least not yet. For that, James Morrison, a correspondent for the Times newspaper in London, was with the expedition. Morris rushed down the mountain to get out his story, dispatching a coded message to Namchi Bazaar by runner, which was then relayed by wireless transmitter to the British Embassy in Kathmandu. The message was coded so that anyone eavesdropping on the wireless when it scooped the breaking story. News of Hillary and Tenzing's epic feat would reach London and be released on the morning of June 2nd, which happened to be the day of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. It had always been Hunt's desire that the team could conquer Everest and get the news to London as sort of a present to the new queen. Thus, mission accomplished. So Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay had done something no one had ever done before, climbed the highest mountain in the world, and word of their deed was spreading throughout the globe. Everest, or Chamalungma, the last great unreached place in the world, had been conquered. And with that, my friends, we will wrap up for today. But fear not, there's still more to talk about. In the final episode of the series, We'll wrap up the climb, talk about the many people in our story, including Tenzing and Hillary, and go into the legacy of the climb and Everest. So there you go. I hope you've enjoyed this epic tale. I will see you next time when we conclude Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay and the conquest of Everest. Thanks again for listening. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.